Welcome to Antelope Road Christian Fellowship. We're glad you're joining us for today's message. For service times or to join a disciple group, please visit myarcf.com. If you own a Bible or if you can download a Bible app real quick, we're going to be in two texts today. Go ahead and start by turning to Galatians chapter 6. If you're new to the Bible uh, and you've got a paper Bible, just uh, in the very front you're going to see a table of contents. If you're new to the Bible and you've got it digitally, you can type it into the search bar at the top, Galatians, G-A-L-A-T-I-A-N-S. And we'll be there in a second, then I'll let you know what text is next after that. We are in a series that we started on Easter called One Body, Many Parts, where we're spending seven weeks asking ourselves, what is the church of Jesus Christ, a body of people purchased by his blood and made into a family by adoption by the same father? What is that? Who are we is another way of saying it. So what does that mean? How does it implicate our behavior? How does it implicate our thoughts and our passions? How do we love and serve the world? How do we love and serve each other? How do we honor God? A lot of questions um, that are all built into that. That's what we're doing Two weeks ago on Easter, our main point that we talked about was that Jesus' death and resurrection not only saved an individual from that, own, that person's own sin, but it adopted that person into the family of God. So there's an individual and communal implication to someone being saved by Jesus from the condemnation that sin brings. Last week, we said a few things. One, an isolated Christian cannot use their spiritual gift, so join a disciple group. The Bible teaches that the Holy Spirit gives Christians special abilities to love and serve the family. So if you're not connected to the family, you cannot serve. We also said the Christian has no right to shake your fist at God and go, uh, oh, I'm sorry, I've got the wrong point. Again, I'm still preaching the wrong point. Yes, you cannot say to God that the church doesn't need that person. But we can also not turn inwardly and say the church doesn't need me. We don't get to, to do that pity party thing. So join a disciple group because that group needs you. We, we either, our actions reveal what we believe. If I'm not in community, I, I don't believe that they need me. And, and I'm ultimately calling God a liar because his, again, I, I don't make me re-preach this sucker. First uh, Corinthians 12 makes it really clear that God designed you like a puzzle piece and put you into a church family because they, they need you and you need them. And we also talked to, oh, I thought there were three. Oh, well, you're going to have to go back to last week's live stream if you want to know, because Pastor Greg ruined the PowerPoint. So what's we going to get on to this week? That's the end of your wrap-up. Okay, because Pastor Greg missed it up. You're going to have to go back and find out what I said. So <laughs> today, sermon title is called Fight Sin with a Friend. This just the title alone, uh, I don't know, though, if you at home, if you've been in church for five minutes or 50 years, um, we're diving into all kinds of controversy just with this title. We're, we're saying the S word. That's not popular. Don't tell me that what I'm doing, thinking, feeling is wrong. But also telling me that I need to fight it. And that... The biblical part of the definition of friendship, koinonia, deep, Holy Spirit-saturated friendship, is one who will fight sin with you because you have a common enemy from having a common Savior. 
So here we go. So prepare yourself to not be happy and to be offended and storm off. And you can storm off and I won't even know because you're at home. Storm off to ESPN to watch a baseball game that was, happened 12 years ago. Okay. All right. First point. Those of you note takers, there are three points today with a few sub points. But those of you that are A-types and like numbers, number one, fight sin with a friend. It's listed as an imperative because it is. Now I'm going to join you guys at Galatians 6. The Apostle Paul speaking to a church in what today we would call Turkey, but about 2,000 years ago. Dear brothers and sisters, if an, another believer is overcome by some sin, you who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back into the right path and be careful not to fall into that same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. If you think you're too important to help someone, you're only fooling yourself. You are not that important. Aren't you glad you came to church this morning? Nobody wants to be told you're not a snowflake, okay? And that's not what Paul's saying. He's not saying that you're not special, beautiful, unique, designed by God. But he did say you are not so important that you can't stoop to serve the person next to you. That's ludicrous, right? Dear brothers and sisters, if another believer is overcome by some sin, you know, isn't this cool that Paul does not say if they're overcome by some sin, go ahead and um, text about them behind their back and judge them. No? Paul didn't say that? He didn't say, you know, disassociate from a genuinely repentant, you know, Christian. He said don't hang out with them anymore. The Bible does say that, but it says it about the punk who keeps saying he's a Christian but won't repent. That's not what this is. You who are godly, should gently. So isn't that loaded? You think you're a godly person? Prove it. Gently and humbly, not wagging your finger, help that person back onto the right path. That's exciting. I come through the property once a day talking to various homeless guests that are staying here on property right now, and I got to talk with one yesterday who's leaving our property today to join a program because he's 10 days clean and sober. I think that's what, right? That's wonderful. We need to celebrate any and every victory. And let's be honest, our hurts and hangups, they crush us. I've been telling you guys for two years, if you and sin or if you and Satan are in a cage match, it's not gonna go well. The only reason that the Christian can enter the octagon against Satan himself is because greater is he who is in me than he who is in the world. It's so critical. I'm begging you. I, I know that uh, I, I grew up in a very Baptist world where we were like afraid of the Holy Spirit as Father, Son, and Holy Scriptures. Well, like, guys, this is important. And I know we've got brothers and sisters that it's like Holy Spirit first, Holy Spirit last, and it can, can become a little bit feelings-driven and some scary things out. Listen, we can't be freaking out at extremes. We cannot talk about the Holy Spirit so much that we never talk about Jesus and everything is a lived experience and everyone has the exact same spiritual gift for some reason. We also cannot pretend like the Holy Spirit does not exist. 
If he does not fill us, we do not walk in his power. We're not going to be able to fight sin. We're not going to have the humility to come alongside a brother and pull each other out of the mud. So this is your first imperative. Fight sin with a friend. One of my best buddies in the whole world, we have a standing Monday morning phone call, 6 a.m. Pacific. He's in Louisville. He might be watching this. Hi, Ken. And... um, the questions that I allow him to ask me and ask him to ask me would make all of you blush. Because I've already given myself over to sin more times than I could count, and I'm tired of it. I had a, a high school Bible teacher at Victory, 10th grade, who said, sin always stays longer than you invited it to stay and costs you more than you wanted to pay. Thank God for rhyming, because it stuck in my head all these years later. Thank you, Mr. Maxwell. I love you, buddy. A few subpoints to this. No one can help me out of my sin if they do not know what my sin is. They will not know my sin if we do not have authentic relationship. How many of you guys know that's true? You don't just go airing your deepest sins to some total stranger. Most people don't do that. Let me, let me state this in, in, a, in a kind of a, a worse way, a, a darker way. If I have made the choice to hold on to my sin, I don't want to repent, then I will make sure not to join the Sunday school class. I will make sure not to join uh, Pastor Dennis's Wednesday night Bible study. I'll make sure not to join a disciple group because I know I will be found out and I want to keep my worship of my junk intact. That's at worst. That's at worst. And if you hold on to that one for too long, there's a point where you need to ask yourself, am I a Christian? If, if, if we treat him as savior, like get out of hell free card, but there is no lordship, I don't celebrate. Not just surrendering to his lordship, okay, Jesus, take the wheel, that's fine, but actually enjoying his lordship. Jesus, I'm so glad you're in charge. I would have screwed this up 5,000 times by now. In fact, I did screw this up when I kept grabbing the wheel No one can help me out of my sin if they don't know what my sin is. And they're not going to know my sin if we don't have authentic relationship. If you're a part of this church family, you've heard me say it a few times now. Our first core value is to connect in authentic relationships. And that really means a couple of things. Really three things. We want every human being in our city and our world to connect in authentic relationship with the Father. And they do that by the blood of Jesus Christ. Secondly, they are now able to connect an authentic relationship with other Christians because the same one who forgave you forgave me and we're siblings now. And third, because I am not living out a life based on my own good works and behavior, I can be humble in the way that I now connect with people who don't believe the same things that I believe. At least three layers of connection wrapped up in that core value. If we do not connect an authentic relationship, we will purposefully or inadvertently protect our own worship of our own false gods. That portion of my heart, I'm not giving it to you, Jesus. No way. Uh Uh-uh. And you're going to end up being like this guy that we talked about last week. You're wearing the jersey and you say you're a part of the team, but there's nobody else around. Also along these lines, and you can find this in verses 1 and 3. You can't help a Christian out of their sin when you're arrogant. You cannot help another Christian to get out of their sin when you're arrogant. 
read verse 3 with me again. If you think you're too important to help someone, so it's a self-importance, right? You are only fooling yourself. You are not that important. In fact, verse 4 goes on to say, you know, pay attention to your own self. <laughs> Just kind of almost like a plank eye situation. Yes, help your brother with a speck in their own eye, but you got a plank in your own. Deal with that first, right? So he doesn't directly allude to it, but it's a very similar text, a very similar idea. And I'm going to ask the same question I think I asked two weeks ago. When someone is a close friend and they say, I need to talk to you about something hard and it's going to be a difficult conversation. If they are a really close friend and they are very, very humble and open about their own junk and their own mess and their own sins, it's still a hard conversation, but isn't the conversation at least possible now? What does it feel like when somebody not in close relationship and looking down on you says, I need to talk to you about your behavior? Back when I was a youth pastor, I received a phone call from a member of our church informing me that a bunch of our teenagers were going to go to hell because I didn't bring the teenagers to her event. (laughs) Oh, man. Very little relationship, zero humility. How do you think that conversation went? (laughs) Oh, and by the way, terrible theology. You didn't bring the teenagers to this event that they weren't interested anyway. They're going to go to hell now. Oh my gosh, so many problems. (laughs) With that, where do I even start? We listen to people who come to us with humility. And, and let me say as an aside, this isn't in the notes. Our humility as Christians, as it relates to the sins that kick us in the tail over and over again, we have to be honest about the fact that we are not all tempted and, and, and um, regularly beaten by the exact same sins. Okay? So I'm just going to give this as an example because I think this is a really good, culturally relevant and appropriate one. So um, it is no secret that the Bible-believing evangelical church has been in the middle of a lot of conflict the last 40 years um, because we have a biblical sexual ethic. And so when our world the last 50 years has started to say, yeah, you get to just choose, this is the way I was born, Uh, a, a woman can be sexually attracted to a woman, can be married to a woman, a man can be married to a man, sexually attracted to a man, whatever. And we're rooted to this thousands of year old text and ethic that we believe is God-ordained for our blessing, there's naturally a conflict. And even within Christianity, there's been conflict over, okay, if there's disagreement and if we disagree, how do we go about it in a kind way, a respectful way, a loving way? And and I would say this, as a Bible-believing Christian, I cannot uh, sit here and if I'm talking with somebody, first of all, if you're gay and you're exploring faith, I need you to know something. If you're talking to a Christian or the Bible or the church about sexuality, you're already having the wrong conversation because Christ's tomb is either empty or it's not. If his tomb is empty, that has an implication on all of us, no matter what our sexuality. Um, But for the church, let me say this. If you're a Christian and you believe the Bible is totally true and you come to me and say, Greg... Um, I believe that homosexuality is wrong. It's one of a thousand sins listed in here. It shouldn't be demonized as anything worse. And you come to me and say, Greg, I'm a Bible-believing Christian who struggles with homosexuality. And if I personally have not been tempted by that sin and I haven't been beat up by that sin, there is this moment where if I handle this wrong, I'm not going to build empathy and I'm not going to be a good listener. 
and you're not going to feel safe sharing. I've got to find a way. Brothers and sisters, listen to me if you're a Christian. I've got to find a raise, raise my hand and say, my heterosexual sin has been over my face countless times. And, I, and I've utterly drowned except that Christ yanked me out. And there's not one type of sexual sin over another sexual sin over another sexual sin that gets you into hell faster. It's just not, I mean, what is it, Leviticus 18? I mean, there, there's a chapter in Leviticus that'll make you blush. Every imaginable thing God does not want us to do sexually with our bodies because he desires greatest joy for us in monogamous, frankly, Christian marriage. One covenant, one lifetime, Right? I am not going to be able to help you unless I can really put on flesh and embody and own how much of a sinner I am and how and beautiful God's grace is. That I'm marked by his grace. I am marked by his forgiveness. I find my identity in the blood he shed on the cross. That's who I am now. I'm not identified by the blood that I shed on the cross. That's self-righteousness. I got myself here. I am right with God now because I was awesome. I did lots of good things. I gave money to missions. I went to church regularly. If I'm awesome, how on earth are you and I going to have a conversation about your sin? No, you're not going to come talk to me. And so I cannot serve you. I cannot love you. I cannot obey obey Galatians chapter 6, 1 through 3. I can't even obey it because of my arrogance. Point number two, fighting sin with a friend is sharing your friend's burden. And Jesus is pleased when you do it. Did you see that in verse two? Back half of verse one. You who are godly should gently and humbly help that person back onto the right path and be careful not to fall into the same temptation yourself. Share each other's burdens and in this way obey the law of Christ. So, I don't know about you, but if you've been around the church for a while, you might have seen perhaps verse 2 taken a smidge out of context. If you do not read verse 1, verse 2 sounds very broad. You're left really wide open going, well, what are burdens? Brother so-and-so is worried about finances right now, and sister so-and-so needs a job, and, and, and they're struggling in marriage, and, and they're ready to kill their teenager, and, and whatever. All of the struggles of life perhaps in my brain, I'm going to connect all of it to verse two because I don't know what Paul necessarily means by that word. Except that he told us his flow of thought is clear from verse one. The burden is the fight with sin and you are helping each other out of the pit. Day in and day out and day in and day out. Later on, he's going to talk about a different type of burden that's a different word. But right now, he's saying, this is fighting the good fight. It's done in community. We help each other. And isn't this scary if I flip it on its head? Isn't this really terrifying? This is, this is tantamount to Paul saying, if you're going to fight your own sin on your own, you're toast. Isn't that implicit? Share each other's burdens, and in this way, obey the law of Christ. So for all the discussion about Old Testament law and what was completed in Jesus and what does or doesn't need to be fulfilled, well, law of Christ, like the law of love, law of Christ, New Testament, 
Um, whether you agree fully with Andy Stanley on that or not, I don't know if you're part of that discussion. But it's really, really clear in the way Paul presents it. You want to make Jesus happy? You want to please him as a child of God? Bear one another's burdens as we wrestle against everything dark inside us and outside of us. There's a powerful series of movies that came out about 20 years ago. And you don't need to go invest 17 hours of your life seeing all three films, although you probably have the time since we're all quarantined. The Lord of the Rings series is a story written by Tolkien about 80, 85 years ago, eh, 75 years ago now. But um, in this story, a young man named Frodo is given this unbelievable burden of a ring that has in it all power, but the longer you hold on to it, it slowly kills you. No one can bear the weight of it. And when he is on this long and epic journey to go to uh, Mount Doom, where he has to throw the ring into the lava of the volcano to be destroyed and basically to save the world, it's killing him more and more and more until the point where he can't even walk. He's halfway up the mountain. He can't do anything. And his friend... Samwise Gamgee. If you saw this movie and you didn't cry at this part, you have a heart of darkness and there's just no hope for you. I'm sorry. Um, Samwise says to Mr. Frodo when he's collapsing under the weight of this burden, let us be rid of it once and for all. Come on, Mr. Frodo. I cannot carry it for you, but I can carry you. And he shoulders his entire friend because the ring wasn't his. It was not his calling to carry the ring, but he did embrace his calling to be a friend. He says, I can carry you. And he carries his friend up the second half of the mountain. And the story would not have had a happy ending. The point is that Samwise, as, sorry, Frodo, as far as he went, he was kept alive by Aragorn and Boromir and these other heroes with swords and Legolas. There were people who kept him alive. There were people who guided him. And there were people that literally carried him up the mountain so he could destroy the ring. That's why the first book of the three is called The Fellowship of the Ring. Frodo could not do it on his own. It was too big for him. And if you call yourself a Christian, this fight is too big for you too. And that is by God's beautiful design. Because he, Father, Son, and Spirit is a community. And he designed human beings to live in community. And we were in community before we rebelled. And our rebellion, I don't know if you've ever read Genesis 3, but all of the consequences of human rebellion are very communal. Men and women are going to have a hard time treating each other as equals. It's right there in the text. There's this severing, this distrust. Fighting sin with a friend is sharing your friend's burden. And Jesus is pleased when you do it. And then third, fight sin with a friend every day to avoid a hard heart. Every day. Now I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Hebrews chapter 3 to see where this point comes from. Hebrews chapter 3. 
truthfully, if you want to get a really good grasp, I want you to go back and, and read the first two chapters of Hebrews. But we're going to jump in at verse 12. Hebrews 3.12. Be careful then, dear brothers and sisters. Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving. Now, this is interesting. He's talking to Christians. He said so, right? Dear brothers and sisters. Ah, this will mess with your theology. You're not used to thinking of a Christian as the one being evil. The writer of Hebrews, he doesn't mess around, okay? Make sure that your own hearts are not evil and unbelieving, turning you away from the living God. So, whether you believe in eternal security, don't believe in eternal security, we have to embrace this text wherever you land on that issue. And if you have no idea what I'm talking about, fine. It's whether or not a Christian can lose their salvation or not. Whether you're on the left or the right of that issue, doesn't matter. The Bible is still 100% true and has to be accepted. This one's tough. Turning you away from the living God. So your, your Calvinists are going to go, oh, this is how somebody reveals that they never believed. In the first place, the Arminians are going to go, no, you, they were a Christian and they weren't. doesn't really matter. You clearly don't want a hard heart based on this text. Right? I don't want a hard heart. That's what matters. I don't want a hard, what is hard? Unbelieving. It says, not evil and unbelieving. 13, you must warn each other. Is he talking to Christians or non-Christians? Okay, said it. Believers and unbelievers. Well, the whole book is to Christians. But he said it in verse 12. Dear brothers and sisters, you must, does must sound like a have to or a suggestion? Okay, it's nice to have people help me preach. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. For if we are faithful to the end, trusting God just as firmly as when we first believed, we will share in all that belongs to Christ. Talk about good news and bad news scrunched together in just a short, right? It ended on a high note there at 14. I'm excited about that. That's good. If I endure to the end, I will share in all that is Christ, as my, he himself is my inheritance. Did that text just say every day, or did it say every day? I think I mentioned this last week. There is not a church in the United States that I am aware of that tells people to gather every single day. And I grew up as a pastor's kid where we had to like, the leadership were always having these conversations of, or are we asking people to come to too much? And when the leadership were having those conversations, it was, do we gather twice a week or do we gather three times a week? And those three times still total were like five and a half hours I love it. Two years ago when I came here, I became Church of God, and I had to really quickly learn what Church of God is. And I found out Church of God doesn't call itself a denomination. They call itself a movement. And I go, oh, that's interesting. So I had to do a little digging, and I read a little history book. And I go, oh, wait a minute. They're on to something. I like this. I like this a lot. And here's why. But it's bad in a certain sense. That's kind of what it looks like when you look at the ministry of Jesus and then the book of Acts. It looks like a movement of the Holy Spirit 
driven by the God, driven by the Holy Spirit, a movement of the gospel. And they were meeting every day. Like, if somebody tells you on a Tuesday, and you're a devout Jew living in Israel 2,000 years ago, and someone tells you they found Messiah, and you believe it, and your heart is transformed, do you wait until Sunday to start asking your questions to totally reorganize your worldview around Torah that you've learned as a kid? No, this is your whole identity, is your ethnic identity, national identity, like everything you know about culture, gender, your relationship to the Roman government, everything comes from this book. And this book has told you that Messiah is coming. And on a Tuesday, you heard that Messiah came and you've believed it. And you're going to what? Stream Game of Thrones the rest of the week? You scroll through your ESPN app? Well, let me find out on Sunday. No! Because there was no such thing as cultural and casual Christianity when this started. It just wasn't a thing. And I I dare say it's hard for anybody to be a casual follower of Jesus Christ when they just killed him and five weeks later they killed Stephen and we're all running for our lives. Every day is what the text says. And pastors, we're like pulling teeth to get people into a Bible study once a week. I'm not saying this as a guilt trip. I'm saying this because the text says it. Acts says it. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, John calls the 12, and they came to Jesus, hung out with him for an hour and 15 minutes every Sunday, but then they went back to their day job. No! Disciples follow. This doesn't mean that we are, as soon as quarantine lifted, we are at this property seven days a week. 168 hours, however many hours. That's not what that means. But it does mean that we are the people of God seven days a week and that every moment of every hour must be for the glory of God one way or the other. We're not going to glorify God if we're not willing to fight sin with a friend. Because if we're not fighting our sin, we're just a dead fish that's floating downstream like the rest of the culture. The scary part about speaking a prophetic word to the culture is that you have to almost stand in condemnation of it. If you're a fish that's alive and you can swim upstream, you have to do it with all your might. Swim with anybody else who will swim with you when 99% are floating the other way. And in this culture, everybody goes, well, you think you're better than me? I'm glad you brought that up. No, my Savior, however, is better than you. Let's do this little knockdown, drag out fight between your ethics and Jesus. Like, let's see who's better, because that is actually the journey that's going to help you. I am not a part of the equation other than to tell you this. We have to fight sin, and we have to fight it every day. And then, as much as I love preaching, I need you to write this down if you're a write it down person. You can't fight sin during a sermon or by showing up to your disciple group once in a blue moon. During a normal get-together where we would all be in this room, it is considered socially polite to remain quiet and let me preach. And if it's awesome, you go, amen, brother, or something like that. But it is not a cultural norm while I'm talking 
for you to all turn and face each other and say, let me share with you my struggles this week. Like that's a cool thing. We see it in Ezra where Ezra's reading the word of God and all of the Levites are spread out throughout the crowd explaining what Ezra's saying. So people are asking questions live. It's like Twitter, but 3,000 years early. That's super cool, but it's not a cultural norm today. What we tend to have to do is we gotta get into a Sunday school class or we walk out into the quad afterwards and we find somebody that we trust and say, hey, what did, what did that Bible verse mean? Would you help me understand that? Like there's got to be a place where there's private conversation so that there can be enough intimacy to go, let me tell you the sins that I'm really struggling with right now. Would you please pray for me, teach me, encourage me? You can't really do it during a sermon. You're, you're intaking information and we're praying that the Holy Spirit of God would allow that to be transformation. But that transformation has to be lived out in relationship because discipleship is a relational like the, the very nature of the word. There is no such thing as a disciple without a rabbi, so you are in relationship if you're a disciple. There you go. There's a whole seven-week sermon series. I guess we can be done. You cannot be a disciple unless you're in relationship. There are other disciples. There is a rabbi. Bada-bing, bada-boom. But we don't do this, so I have to spend seven weeks convincing you. A weekly disciple group has the power to give you daily relationships. Did you know that? Some of you who experienced this some of you experienced this in a rock-solid uh, Sunday school class 45 years ago, and you can, you know, amen, and you can testify to this. When you have good friends out of a relatively small group, 8, 10, 12 people who love Jesus, and there's a crisis that strikes on a Thursday night, but that's not when your group meets, does that stop you from picking up the phone? Mm-mm. Because if I devote an hour, hour and a half, two hours, and we devote that time together, it builds a connection and a trust that exists permanently throughout the week. I know this person loves me. I know this person would care. Um, I heard a pastor years ago say, I knew our Sunday school was healthy if I, as the pastor, was not in the first 10 phone calls when someone went to the hospital. He wanted to be the 11th person into the hospital room. And that's how he knew they had a strong Sunday school. Is that cool or what? And I couldn't agree more. I don't want to be the first person in the room if I don't have to. I want there to be so much connection, so much koinonia, that it's like, oh, yeah, maybe we should get a pastor in here too. I would love to be an afterthought because there's so much beautiful gospel-centered friendship throughout the church. Brothers and sisters, a weekly disciple group absolutely has the power to give you daily relationships. And then to press in on a specific while we're on this topic, and then we're going to be done here shortly. The spiritual safety, when I say spiritual safety of a group, I mean, am I allowed to share that I am a sinner and what specifically are my sins? Like, here's what I need help with. That is totally determined by the leader. And this is more of a sociological point, but it's really clearly taught, I believe, through scripture as well a humble leader who is saturated in the, in the blood of Jesus and, and that's the strength that he or she walks in. The leader of the group on the very first week, in my opinion, should find something to share for prayer time, share in prayer, the back third of a disciple group. If the leader, if he or she says, 
this is what I need to pray for. And they're not praying for their cousin's uncle's gerbil that has cancer. I keep making fun of that because I grew up in the church and I heard that nonsense. It's like two layers deep of a cousin I've only met once. I'm like, okay, fine, but okay, we can pray for that. But what about you? What about you? And if the leader is able to say genuinely, here's what was wrestling in my heart this week and I realized that I really feel entitled to the world revolving around me and there's a selfishness that is there and I hate it and I don't want it to be there. Would you guys pray for me? Now I have named a sin and it wasn't some theoretical thing that I did nine years ago. This week, my heart was sinning. And then everyone else who is in the room when that is shared is sent a signal. Not just that that leader shared, but that the group responds, oh man, my heart goes out to you. My heart does the same thing. Let's pray for brother so-and-so right now. I heard that this is a safe place to share sin because we're gonna respond to sin by calling on the most high who is the sin eater. Calls to action. Oh, this is a pictorial example of what I just said. You see the guy out front? You don't need to be a student of history to understand this one. If Sarge goes up over first, now you have to go. Because he has risked his life for you so many times. And he is not sitting behind the safety of the wall saying, you ought to do this scary thing. He up and is over the wall. And I can't speak for how a lady's heart operates, but I can tell you for a man, part of the reason that World War I operated the way it did and was bloody as it was, if Sarge goes up over that wall, you feel like you've absolutely lost your man card and betrayed every one of your brothers and betrayed your Sarge if you don't go up to. You kind of have to now. So, calls to action. If you are not sure yet what you think of Jesus, you're not sure what you think perhaps of the Bible or of the Christian church, I want to encourage you to take a good, slow look at the book of Romans. And when I say it's 16 chapters, that may sound like it's a whole huge book. It's actually not. In the Bible, a chapter is often less than a page. Uh, this book is maybe 12 pages long, something like that, depending on the size of the print and all that. And I want to encourage you to take a look at it if you're not a Christian because we've talked a lot today about sin and we have assumed that a Christian is supposed to be fighting that sin. And there's probably no better book than Romans to describe what sin is and to show how Jesus Christ, by going to a cross, directly dealt with sin, giving victory to everyone who would put their faith in him. Okay? Especially those first three chapters, but really the whole thing starts to show the implications of responding to his grace and to his forgiveness. So if you're new to Christianity, new to certain concepts, like what is the Christian concept of sin? What is the Christian concept of forgiveness? Why are Christians putting crosses on everything? The first few chapters of Romans will answer those questions for you. And so that's the direction I want to point you. Um, and I just want you to know, I, I love you. If you're here, you don't believe, uh, the same things that Christians believe. We, we love that you're here and that you've got the humility to dig and explore and listen and learn. That's just really exciting and we're glad you're here. Um, for somebody who already loves Jesus, 
fight sin or be killed by it. That's what verse 14 told you. That's what verse 14 told me. Let's go back to 13. You must warn each other every day while it is still today so that none of you will be deceived by sin and hardened against God. So verse 13, sorry, not 14. If you are deceived by sin, your heart will be made hard. And this is the opposite of what God said through the prophet Ezekiel, that that hard heart would be made soft. Christian, wherever you stand, and I want to go back to that. It wasn't in the notes. Let me talk to the Calvinists for a minute. If you believe that you cannot lose your salvation, and I happen to be one of them, but if you believe that you cannot lose your salvation, there are still certain texts that ought to scare you. And they are there on purpose. There should be no room for swagger in the kingdom of God. There's no room for I am above that. There's no room for that can't bite me. There's no room for taking a baby tiger home as a pet. Treating it like this will never be a problem. It's so cute, I pet it. And then acting surprised when a 400 pound cat kills you. Scriptures tell us to work out our faith with fear and with trembling. And no matter what you believe about whether or not you could lose your salvation, the scriptures are really clear. If you persist in sinning repeatedly, blatantly, no repenting, no turning, no asking brothers and sisters for help, no guilt. Scriptures say godly guilt leads to repentance. Repentance is a 180 degree turn. If there is never any turn in your behavior. It's just not there, no desire, no angst. Sin doesn't even bother you anymore. You're comfortable there. You will have gained nothing for yourself, attending church, giving money, serving on a team. You bought yourself nothing. Let me tell you something that's implicit down beneath this command. Those who love their Savior will be compelled to fight sin. You will find the natural compulsion and this church wants to be your greatest ally. Because God's glory is on the line. Because our city is watching our character. and Because our brothers and sisters need us desperately. Amen? Amen? For this church to be safe for the sinner, we cannot be a safe place for sin. Because one is killing the other. Holy Spirit, we cannot become the people that you would lead us to be except that you give us soft hearts. We need your leadership, we need your indwelling, we need the power and the desire to obey the Father. Jesus, we are absolutely swimming upstream in our attempts to fight sin or even to call sin, sin. 
is so countercultural, let alone to fight it or to do so in community. God, I believe there are brothers and sisters listening right now, maybe in the room, that are absolutely terrified, God, at the prospect of this level of authenticity. And I ask that your Holy Spirit would make their mind and their hearts to rest calmly in how desperately you love them and how desperately this church loves them. God, convince us that the surgeon pulls out a knife and cuts us open to save our life. That's why he or she does that. To take something out that is going to kill us if they don't take it out. God, for those of us that love you and call ARCF home, I beg you to make us a peculiar people. Make our behavior odd. Make it stand out that the world has no choice, that our city has no choice but to take a second look at those Christians over there. We ask for this in the victorious, never lost a battle name of Jesus Christ. God's people said, amen. Love you guys. Have a great week.